0: I want to pick up on something Brandon uh, mentioned. By the way, my name is Jason, if you're new. Um, glad to have you. Pick up on something Brandon mentioned last week. He opened the door on the conversation of what the global church is celebrating starting actually last Wednesday. Anybody know what we're talking about? Somebody's... What? Wait, what? Lent. Yeah, started on Ash Wednesday. You may not know Catholic people or Anglican people who walked around all day Wednesday with ashes on their head. It's funny, once you have them, you think... When they put the ash on your head, you think, that's going to be really strange, and then you forget about it, and then people like in traffic are like, never, <laughs> it's funny stuff. But Lent is one of the great seasons of the church that began on Ash Wednesday, where we mark ourselves literally with the ashes, reminding ourselves that from ash to ash, our life is um, a passing thing, right? And so... With the sign literally of our immortality, we mark ourselves to begin to prepare ourselves for the journey towards Easter. And thank God there's a journey, because if you're like me, it takes a journey to get anywhere, right? I don't just get inside truth. It takes me a while to labor and get into that place. And there's two great seasons of the church. And in our own A and way, we, we've mentioned them both and we celebrate them both. And so we're right at the beginning of the longest of those two seasons. The other one would be Advent and it builds up to Christmas. Same idea. A way to prepare ourselves to prepare ourselves for the, for the birth of the Messiah. Lent is a way to prepare ourselves for Easter, right? The single most important date in the constellation of Christian meaningful days of the year. Easter is that most significant date. Millions of faithful around the world, literally millions, regather their focus during Lent and focus again on that empty tomb. Because if the tomb isn't empty when he says it's going to be empty then we're all wasting our time. And I think it's important to remember that. Those words, from ashes we came and to ashes we shall return, it's striking to me because what's amazing, and I love to tell this story, and if you get tired, just nod off or check Facebook, but those ashes that we put on our forehead, and again, you may not have done this this year, but the ashes that we put on our forehead in the shape of the cross are literally made up of the incinerated remains of last year's palm fronds. And think about that. So those palm fronds are kept and incinerated and mixed with a tiny bit of oil and set aside for the following Lent for Ash Wednesday. And the reason that's significant to me is because there's something very profound because those are our palm fronds because we are the ones who say, Hosanna, Hosanna. You are the fulfillment of everything we've hoped for. But within within a calendar year, within 12 months, we are those people who are saying, prepare us again. Because by the end of Holy Week last year, what our hosannas had converted themselves into what? Sorry, my back hurts. I can't sit. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. See, what goes down during Holy Week is so profound that at the beginning, we think it's the right deal. We buy in. We're all in. This is the one. He's going to overthrow every system that enslaves me. He's going to be the answer to everything I've ever wanted. And by the end of the week, we can't find where to hide. Because when we realize what this deal is going to involve for us, we slink back into the crowd. The New Testament has preserved for us the story in which only John and Jesus' mother and a few others were actually there the moment Jesus died. The rest were hiding. And so in a very profound way, the year for us is a cycle between ashes and palm fronds. Think about this. Between ashes and palm fronds. Between you are the one, oh my goodness, what's this gonna mean? And by this time next year, by Lent next year, as we prepare again for those, and it's gonna be, cut. listen, Not only do palm fronds become ashes, but ashes become palm fronds. You get what I'm saying? It's a cycle. I want us to become comfortable with this because if you feel like the only way you can be a good disciple is to constantly be on, oh yeah, Hosanna, you're the man, I'm with you. If you expect to have no cycles of doubt and self sort of reflection, you're like, what have I done? Then I'm not sure you're following the right Jesus. Does that make sense? If we can acclimate ourselves to these journeys, there are peaks and there are valleys. And he is not an easy guy to follow. He rolls into town. It sounds all right. By the time we see the deal, we realize, what? There's a cross? Like, there's a cross between us and an empty tomb? Like, wait a second. So it's it's fun to remind ourselves of that. The challenge is to turn again the ashes of brokenness with, with which we mark our head back into hosannas, convicted hosannas that we know you are the one, and we're going to follow you wherever you go. But to get that done, it's going to take 40 days to prepare. So that's the journey that we're on. It started Ash Wednesday, so this is the first Sunday of Lent. In your bulletins, interestingly enough, you'll notice there's a tiny little uh, half-page printout. And chances are you can't read it because it's really, really small font. I didn't think about that when we put that together. But if you need a magnifying glass, it's okay. It's cool. That's that's the new cool. You can read with a magnifying glass if you need that. So there's, there's, it's just a scripture journey that you can follow along during these 40 days. Interesting, if you're a math person, has anybody sat and said, well, wait, there's actually not 40 days between now and Easter. There's 40 days minus Sundays. Because in the, in the early church, Sundays were considered a feast day no matter what. So here's the good news for those who are going to consider fasting something or fasting in some way during Lent. Sundays, nobody fasts. In the ancient church, nobody fasted on Sunday. It was a high feast day. So woohoo! it's Fat Tuesday again in case you wondered, right? I've been waiting all week for Sunday to come, right? So you'll notice there's 40, there's 40 days minus Sabbaths, minus Sundays between now and Easter. So that's for you to read along, and if you find meaning in that journey, that's great. One of the earliest nicknames for believers was the Easter people. I love that title. In the ancient world, this is how we were known. We were known as the Easter people in the first, first century. It means something, because let's remember, before the empty tomb stands a cross, and those are the two things that we, that we embrace, We die before there's a resurrection. There's always a death preceding a resurrection. Death always precedes a resurrection in the economy of God. That's just how it is. New life, yes, it's promised. We're all on our way, but there's a journey to get there. Here's what I mean. We are constantly being pulled by Jesus into that Easter reality, constantly being pulled into it, which is another way of saying we're constantly being pulled towards the releasing of control of our lives and giving it back to him. It's the constant, never-ending background track of faith. Specifically, I want to talk about these three things today as we reflect on the scriptures that we're going to look at. We need to understand how the loss of control of number 1 our resources, number 2 our thoughts and our desires, and number 3 our bodies. The loss of these three things is what we're talking about in Easter. The loss of control of those things that you own. Oh, don't go there. Mhm. The loss of controls of our thoughts and our desires. And the loss of control of our bodies. Lent is a time to intentionally increase our hunger and desire for the Lord's constant coming. It's not as if he came. He's constantly coming to our lives. For our constant relinquishment of control back to him. That's what we're being pulled towards. You know, we have the advantage of history. We look back through history and we're like, you know, he got up from the dead. All good. Jesus reigns. Yeah. But if you were one of the original 12, the outcome of this story was anything but obvious during that journey. Our victory is complete. And yet we are wise followers of Jesus to get back into that journey as often as we can because he is ever-coming in inbreaking breaking and ever-revealing ways in our heart. You think you're done, you give that one thing back to him, get ready. By next week, you'll, you'll be looking at something else and realize it's an onion, right? Ogres have onions. I don't know why I always think of that. If we're ever going to recover... Easter, back from the hands of Hallmark and Hershey's chocolates, right? Which is kind of who controls it now. If we're ever going to pull it back, we're going to have to literally defibrillate our sleepy souls back into action. Action. What kind of action? What a great question. What sort of action does it take for you and I to more profoundly encounter a risen Lord? That's the question of Lent. What sort of things must we do to ease back into the deep waters of a risen Savior again? What do we have to do if we're trying to prepare ourselves for a deeper awareness of Christ in the world? You know, in many ways, this is the central question of all kinds of institutions and faiths. What must we as human beings do to partake with the divine? Every major religion in the world is obsessed with this question. What must we do? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book with that very same title, How Then Shall We Live? What do we do now that we've encountered the reality of a risen Savior? Do we keep some kind of elaborate laws that keep us ready? Do we pray facing east, facing west, on our head, in a yoga position? What do we do? Do we give our money to build cathedrals? Are we the bodies, the the living cathedrals in the world? What do we do now that we've experienced this master? You know, the Apostle Paul would have said something along these lines. These actions that defibrillate us back into readiness to receive and relinquish the control of our lives are the spiritual disciplines that we've been given. Spiritual disciplines, I hate that conversation, don't you? Instant self-consciousness because of my lack of enthusiasm to do the things that I know that I ought to do. Here's that same question, what must we do through the lens of Paul? He might say, how do we get our spiritual disciplines right? Is there a self-serving or a self-interested way of giving our resources that somehow nullifies the effect? If we do it for the wrong reasons, does it still count? These are great questions. Is there a right way and a wrong way to pray? to prepare ourselves. Is it possible that prayer can be misdirected and a waste of our time? What about fasting? What counts and what doesn't? How hard do we have to fast? How much do we have to give up? Do we do these things, these spiritual exercises out of duty or out of gratitude? Perhaps the most profound question of all. I'll tell you what, let's just take the filter off. Let's just have the question, right? Let's just go straight at it. What will guarantee that God will answer my prayers? What's going to guarantee that God's going to hear me when I pray? What's going to guarantee that when I fast, God takes notice? Now, if you've never prayed like that before, chances are you've never lost someone. You've never stared down the barrel at disease. You've never had your heart broken by doing the right thing. Chances are you've never lost something if you've never prayed with that background track, that stem track in your ear, saying, what do I have to do to get God to notice? We need answers. And this is not a shocking reality to God. We need those answers. You guys don't think like that, do you? You don't pray like that, do you? You got this all figured out. It's just me. I, I get it. It's just me. But let me give away the ending of where we're going today before we even begin. Lent In Lent, we are essentially talking about preparing ourselves for the answer. The ultimate answer is Jesus. And it takes preparation to land that plane in our hearts again. But the answers to the questions that, that seem to elude us, it's, they don't elude us because of their complexity or because God is distant or because God is deaf or because God doesn't want to answer. They elude us because we've not yet learned how to see in that divine kingdom economy where Jesus is always moving in the right direction. We have to learn how to see, and so Lent is a gift. It trains our eye. The spiritual disciplines provoke our body into complaint through which we can... Turn the volumes down of every other loud thing in our life till we can see what God is doing. Here's a rule of thumb. Works for me. Might work for you. Anything that is truly spiritual, truly divine, truly transcendent is also very likely to be simple, earthy, and immediate. We're looking on the horizon for the big answer, and it's right here. It's in earth and stone and bread and water and wine spiritual things are deeply natural and very, very close. And this is why everyone sees Jesus come along the radar and they're like, yep, that's not a thing. Keep looking. That's not the thing we're looking for. We're still looking out here. Really deeply spiritual things come packaged in ways that we can understand. And so prayer and the giving of our resources and fasting are things that I would just as soon pass on to get to the bigger idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there's no way that way if you know what i mean you know my thoughts in my opinion the spiritual disciplines are designed not to move god but to move us and to, and, and, and to help us see what god is doing they've got very little to do if anything with earning god's favor or twisting his arm they simply help us see what god is already doing so we give of our resources to identify with the poor and to alleviate their suffering, but also in so doing to alleviate our own suffering and to remove our own scales from our own eyes. That's why we give. It transform, transforms us in the transaction. And we pray, and you'll notice there's a little three-point cadence here, this, this giving, this prayer, and this fasting. And we're going to get to that scripture. But we give for those reasons, to bless and to be transformed. We pray to conform our thoughts and our desires to his thoughts and his desires until we literally want what he wants. Those are the prayers God answers when we're in tune. And our wanting can't be stopped because we want what he wants. Let your kingdom come in the earth as it is in heaven, right? And we fast to no hunger for a more lasting substance than earthly bread alone. That's why we do what we do. We do these things to get ourselves inside the life of God, the life of the Father, here in the natural world, which is especially alive and active in the lives of the broken and the poor. And I'm so sorry if Jesus, the friend of the poor, has exhausted you and worn you out. But it's what I see in Scripture. We've been trekking through the book of Matthew. And maybe, just maybe, from our vantage point in history as the most wealthy, the most deeply resourced and educated community of all times, maybe this is the Jesus that is the hardest to deal with. The Jesus that says, join me in serving the poor. Deeply provocative, revolutionary message of Jesus. It would be so much easier to follow the intellectual Jesus. We're going to see this later in the book of Isaiah, but before that, we're going to look at the book of Matthew. There's a deep and an essential connection between our spirituality, those things we do to school ourselves, our bodies, our flesh, our minds, our spirit, those things we do, there's a connection between that and actual action to serve the poor and the hungry. Isaiah's is going to take us there. But, as Jesus would say, we can't just check the box and do the thing. It's got to be for the right motive. And here's where we get tripped up. So let's look at the book of Matthew. We're not going to Matthew 22. We're going to pick that back up soon enough. Matthew 6. Chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 18. Here's where I'm getting those, those three moves, right? The giving, the praying, and the fasting. This is from Jesus' mouth himself. Verse 1, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Uh-oh. If you do, you will, have your, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. It's a little hard to imagine, but that actually was a thing. Like before the big dog gives his offering, da-da-da-da, here comes the big dog, watch him put his little deal in the bucket. Woo! everybody, wow, that's a spiritual dude, right? That's kind of hard to imagine probably isn't that hard to imagine how we do that today, but we won't go there. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, words of Jesus, listen to this, they have received their reward in full. Heaven isn't stingy with what you do. It's just what kind of reward do you want? If you want an audience, go ahead, go that route. You'll have your audience and everyone will applaud and everyone will think you're just amazing. But when you give to the needy, verse 3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's a whole lot harder than giving. He's talking about some sort of weird secret thing where the one half of your body doesn't even know what the, right, the other half of your body is doing. Let's look at prayer, verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, says Jesus, they have received their reward in full admiration, accolades, hooray for the spiritual prayer warrior. That's what you're going to get, right? If that's what you're looking for. But when you pray, verse 6, Jesus says, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Like what? Like pagans? Ugh, babbling like pagans. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you ought to pray, says Matthew. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That perfect alignment where your, kingdom, where your will is the only thing that happens. Let it happen here the way it already happens in heaven. Conform me to that reality because that's where we need to live in this prayer. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, we could just cut this verse out. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, right? That forlorn sort of hippie vegan face we walk around like, oh. That's for you, Trey. Can you tell somebody who's been eating too many carrots and sweet potatoes? They look orange. You ever met somebody like that? That, oh, what was me thing, right? How you doing? Well, I'm fasting. Oh, boy. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, and now we know what's coming because he's in a rhythm here. If you do it this way, that's all you get is people saying, Atta boy, way to eat those sweet potatoes, right? You've received your reward in full in full. Verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting. Be secret about this. Be secret about this is what he's saying. But only your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What action does it take to align ourselves with the kingdom of God? What action does it take to actually see the world? He sees it. Jesus suggests, let's start with that. Let's start with giving away what you have Then let's talk about prayer and let's talk about fasting. A couple of key points here. Anything done for earthly audiences has its built-in reward. Earthly audiences. It won't transform us, our situations, or the people we love. It will create an audience, and that will be its own reward. And that will be all we get. True spiritual disciplines or piety have more to do with secrecy, with privacy, and with getting it done behind closed doors than I've ever thought about, maybe you've ever thought about. Another point, there's a sinister link between spiritual disciplines and the things we do and this primal but fatal desire to perform for others. This is how the message of the gospel gets wrapped around a people who very, very quickly make an institution and with the sword and with a cross in one hand say, this is the way the world must believe and Christianity is drugged to the ditches by the third century because it's now an empire. But it was never an empire. It was always a gospel. It was always a message to the poor and the broken. There's this link between what we do to please God and what we do to ready ourselves for his coming and our desire to perform. One last point, specifically on the topic of fasting, is since this is what we're talking about in Lent, Jesus seems to go beyond just doing it in private. He suggests ways to literally fool those around you. How strange is that? I think these reminders are in order because we tend to make hierarchies out of spiritual disciplines, right? We've got our elite people in our mind. We've got our, well, you know, they're doing the best they can, and we'll do, yeah, these people, man, no wonder. We break it into categories, right? And we run that loop in our head because we need to understand these are the go-to people. These people are struggling. We think that our answers are somehow stuck in the hopper when we pray, when we beg God for meaning, when we beg God for release. We think they're stuck in the hopper somewhere because we haven't gotten the formula right. And everybody who gets the formula right writes the book and then goes on tour. And everybody tries the formula and it works for a while. And it's like a dieting plan. Before you know it, you're back to where you began. And once again, Jesus, the surprising one, that's my favorite way to think of him. Instead of just teaching on the subjects of piety and spiritual discipline, it takes the conversation to a deeper level. Why do you do these things? Where is the, What's the why behind the what, right? Remember, Easter has a claim on us because we're following Jesus. It's pulling us somewhere. Jesus is literally pulling us to that ultimate loss of control of our resources through the giving to the poor, of our thoughts and desires through the life-molding, actual brain-molding habit of prayer. And he's pulling our bodies towards Easter through the discipline of fasting. The book of Isaiah, the prophet writes, chapter 58, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Wait, what? Yep. And to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, say, and, and you have not seen us. This is God speaking as if he's in a court case with his people, right? We've tried. They're seeking me. They're doing the best they can. But watch what they get wrong and see if the shoe doesn't fit. They say, for we've humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed, God, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit your workers, says God. Uh Uh-oh, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. That's the way it always ends in my house because if I don't eat, somebody's going to get in a fight. Sorry, that's just a side point. You guys know what I'm talking about? You get to that point and it's like this total fast, day nine, and you're thinking, which is better, to keep fasting and keep being a, a lion and a dragon to my children or should I just eat something to be better? Anyway, I think it's funny. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high, says God. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable, acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? And now he's going to tell us what he's really looking for. Not the spiritual discipline, but the motive behind it. Watch this. Is not this the kind of fasting that I've chosen for? It? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? Translation, ref, refugee. When you see the naked, to clothe them and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Isn't this what I'm looking for? Oh, Jesus, the friend of the poor, continuing to mess up our world. Verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebound, will rebuild the ancient ruins, and will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called repairer of the broken walls, restorer of the streets with dwellings. It's not enough to do the stuff we know to do. We've got to do it with the right motive. He's not mincing words here. He's shooting straight. And here's the point. We can be captive to our resources. We can be prisoners of our way of thinking, right? We can be captive to our resources. Think of the discipline of giving, We can become enslaved at any economic bracket. You can become enslaved to that flow of cash in because it's power and it's decision and it's leisure and it's the things that you think you deserve. We can become slaves to those things. We can become slaves to our thoughts and our desires to which the antidote is prayer, to which the antidote is seek the will of the Father. And we can become trapped in our bodies. And fasting breaks that out. And the antidote to all three is Easter. The answer to all three is a risen Savior who's going to ask again, hey, pass me the reins. It's my life. Mm-hmm. Pass me the reins. Let me have the steering wheel. And our victorious ending has a cross that precedes it. And that cross is the ultimate loss of control and our identifying of our lives with Christ. But there's no way to get there except through the cross, through letting go. And so our answers lie behind disciplines that school us, that make demands on our wallets, that make demands on our thinking and our desires, that actually make demands on our bodies. That's our answer, and it lies behind the disciplines that school us in those ways giving, prayer, and fasting. So what do we do with this? What might you give up that has gone from a thing to becoming something you hide behind? Lent isn't just about giving things up. It's about doing things instead of other things. So what might we give up and what might we start to do to prepare ourselves for the risen Savior? Pray with me.